0: Take my text and title from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 this morning. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he, that is Jesus, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. This morning my title is Power Perfected in Weakness weakness. As we move now into chapter 12 of this letter, Paul has addressed the boasting of the false apostles in their spiritual pedigree, their ethnic pedigree rather. They were saying in verse 11, they were Hebrews, they were Israelites, and they were the seed of Abraham. And so they were. Paul counters that with his moment of boasting And saying, he is also, but as a minister of Christ, he was more. And then he talked again about much of his suffering on behalf of the church for the glory of Christ. Then in verse 30, he transitions and says, If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. And he ended the chapter with an occasion or an account of such weakness. He was lowered over a wall in Damascus very early on after his conversion in a basket. God delivered him through not an occasion of heroic effort, but an occasion of weakness. He was actually lowered over a wall. This sets the stage then for the next ten verses where Paul now is compelled to continue to boast just a little. "...to counter now what these false teachers were saying about powerful spiritual experiences. That if you don't have any, you're not an apostle. There are teachers today that will say similar things. They will draw attention to powerful spiritual experiences, often that cannot be verified by Scripture, for which we are all very impressed and drawn to such powerful private experiences." So Paul will talk about such an experience, but he'll turn it on its head. And that's the reason he'll speak about this vision, this revelation he had, which apparently he had more than one. He will do it to show the weakness of powerful spiritual experiences. And then that will lead to verse 7 where he'll talk about the power of weakness. So verses 1 through 6, we'll look at the weakness of Paul's powerful spiritual experience. He was caught up into heaven. And then we'll look at the power of Paul's weakness. And that's how he wants to pull those two together in this chapter as he continues to be compelled to boast a little bit, but he will boast in his weaknesses in order that he may counter these false apostles and rescue the church who's being drawn away to a false theology. So let's look first in verse 1. We'll look at a few ways in which Paul says this genuine experience he had, in a vague way he'll recount, he will show us how it's really weak. Verse 1. It is not expedient for me to doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So Paul is going to continue to move In this avenue of a little boasting, and now he's going to proceed to visions and revelations. But what does he say? It is not expedient. The first weakness of Paul's spiritual experience is it has no profit for the church. It is not expedient, it doesn't edify. In 1 Corinthians 10 23, he would say, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So Paul is saying, while I'm compelled to tell you about this experience that I've been silent for 14 years about, it has no value. My private experience in being caught up into the third heaven has no value for the church, which means it's really weak. Why is it of no value to the church? Number two, because it does not reveal anything about God. It does not communicate one single fact or knowledge about God. And this is what Paul begins to say in verse 2. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, verse 3, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now Paul uses a structure called parallelism. And this particular type expands on the first idea in the second. So he gives us the first idea. Paul was caught up into the third heaven. Then he expands in the second part of this uh, parallelism. And he adds information. And what he adds is... Unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, Paul is so concerned about not saying too much that he speaks in vague terms. He will use the third person. Perhaps you've done that. You want to talk about someone that you want to protect their identity, or maybe you're talking about yourself and you say, I knew a person that did that one time, and you mean yourself, or you mean someone you're trying to protect. Now, they know Paul is talking about himself. But it is so uncomfortable for Paul to say this, which he's kept silent for 14 years, that he speaks in vague third-person terms. And he says, I don't even remember if it was an out-of-body experience that he was left his body, went up to the third heaven, which apparently there's levels of heaven according to Deuteronomy 10.14. The heaven and the heaven of the heavens is the Lord's. The third heaven here is the place where Jesus is because He used the word paradise... In Luke, to tell the thief, what? This day you will be with me in paradise, in the third heaven where I am. Paul doesn't know if he went out of his body or his whole body went up into heaven where he heard unspeakable words. But God knows. And what does Paul expand on here that tells us the weakness of this revelation? He could not speak what he heard. So whatever he heard God say, he could not communicate it. Now why couldn't he communicate it? Well, it wasn't because Paul wasn't able to communicate it, and it wasn't because the church wasn't able to receive it. It's found in the word lawful, which means not allowing, which is an imperative voice verb, meaning this. God commanded Paul, don't you ever tell anybody what you heard, and therefore he didn't. He didn't say he couldn't tell the experience, for which he's been silent for 14 years, but Paul was commanded by God, don't tell them what you heard. Which means this powerful spiritual experience doesn't edify the church because it does not communicate God. This was an experience between Paul and God alone for his benefit. And therefore Paul says, it's weak in really accomplishing any good thing And so Paul wants that to be known in this boasting, in his weakness. Thirdly, the weakness of this revelation is that it has no grounds for boasting. So Paul says in verse 5, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities or weaknesses. Well, if he will not glory, why is he glorying in this one? Because he's glorying in the Lord. Now think about it. The word caught twice is called the divine passive. That's a simple expression that men use to say this passive voice verb, when the author of the passive verb is God, it's called a divine passive. The word caught means to be snatched or to be taken by force. Jesus uses it in Matthew 13 concerning the devil, which catcheth away the word sown in the heart, he snatches it. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 to say we'll be caught up into the heavens to be together with the Lord. We'll be snatched. Now who does the snatching? Paul didn't say, let me tell you about this revelation where I I, I sort of lifted myself, I sort of jumped up into heaven. He was snatched. He was caught. He was passive. Now how are you going to glory in that? How did you get there, Paul. I was just lying on my bed thinking and all of a sudden I'm in heaven. I was walking along and God snatched me. It's weak because Paul has no basis for boasting whatsoever. He's boasting in the power of God. Secondly, how can you boast in simply hearing something? Like a student sitting in a desk in a classroom. The teacher's doing all the work, you're just sitting there listening. So whatever he saw, whatever he heard, that he could not communicate because God commanded him not to communicate, Paul is passive. And so he says in verse 5, Of such an one I will glory, meaning glorying and boasting in Christ who snatched him, yet of mine own self I will not glory but in my weaknesses. So in a kind of paradoxical way, Paul tells about his powerful spiritual experience in a way that's very weak. Because it has no profit for the church, it communicates nothing about God, and it's not the means of boasting whatsoever except a boasting in the Lord. And finally, it is weak because it does not establish anything about the credentials of the Apostle Paul, which is why they're attacking him. Paul, you don't have these experiences. You're really not an apostle. Paul says, I do have them. But they have no value. They're weak in establishing my credibility. Verse 6. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. Paul said if I, if I wanted to glory, it wouldn't be foolish because I'm just telling you the truth. But the false apostles are deceptive, they're workers of deceit. We learned in chapter 11. So Paul says, but now, verse 6, I forbear. That's as far as I'll go with this vision lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Now what should you think about the Apostle Paul? What should they think about the Apostle Paul as an apostle? Only what they can see, what they can't see. And they couldn't see a powerful spiritual experience. So Paul says, that's it. I don't want anybody to think me above that which he sees to be in me. And what do they see? A suffering weak apostle for the glory of Christ and the good of the church and what he hears of me and what did they hear not what you can't hear you can't hear Paul's powerful spiritual experience because God commanded him not to communicate it. what did they hear his gospel and his teaching and thereby Paul and us and any teacher His credibility is on the basis of what you see in the man and what you hear from the pulpit that he's preaching from. That's the basis of authenticating a ministry. So Paul now shows us the weakness of his powerful revelation to transition of what he wants to talk about, the power of his weakness. Verse 7 and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, he gave us one, but apparently he had more, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to strike me, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought, I begged the Lord thrice, or three times, that it might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities and my weaknesses. Why, Paul? So that the power of Christ may rest on me. So, now for a few moments, let's look at how the power of of Christ was manifested through Paul's weakness. Not through a, a powerful spiritual experience that Paul really had, but through weakness. First of all, Jesus says His grace is sufficient. This is the answer to Paul's prayer. The word sufficient means enough, in ample supply, satisfactorily. Paul. Concerning this thorn, my grace is an ample supply for you. But then notice he uses two words synonymous with grace. Because my strength, that's grace, strength or power, is made perfect in weakness. And then next he says, the power of Christ may rest upon me. Strength and power are the same Greek words. So the grace of Christ is the power or strength of Christ resting on you. In weakness, the word rest means to fix a tent upon, to tabernacle on someone. It means the divine presence of Jesus Christ so tabernacling on you to empower you, to strengthen you, and to help you. Beloved, we often think of grace as a theological position, and it is, or a past tense experience of conversion, and it is. But here, grace is the empowerment of Christ coming to us and so resting upon us that we experience it, and it has an impact in a certain way. See, Jesus is not a doctor that prescribes a medicine and says, take two of these daily and come back and see me in a month. It's the presence and power of Christ with you. You can see this even more readily in the original language. The phrase, my grace is sufficient for thee, is literally in this order. Sufficient for you is the grace of me. Paul, I am sufficient for you. I am all that you need. I am in ample supply for you. I am satisfactory for every thorn you will ever experience. Grace is not a potion, it's a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. So what we need to do then is bring our weakness, our helplessness to Christ and He brings His sufficiency of His presence to empower us so that we experience something when He is resting on us. What is that experience? And then we exhibit something when He is resting on us. What is it that we're displaying? The praise of the glory of His grace, Ephesians 6.1, right? And the power of the treasure in a clay pot so that the excellency of that power may be displayed. And everybody says, well, that's not of them. That is all of somebody else and somebody else's power. So that's the two things that... This power, when resting upon us, should be producing or being made perfect in us. And that's a present tense word there. So it's something that's being brought to completion, but it's something that's happening throughout our lives. To be made perfect is to be complete or to be supplied that which is lacking to bring it to fullness. And what's lacking that we need more of is weakness. That's the means for which this power rests. So let's look at that in verse 7. How does this power of Christ come and rest on us? It comes through weakness. And what is weakness in this context? What was the weakness of Paul? It was a thorn in his flesh. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul uses what's called a chiastic structure here. A, B, B, A. Think of it as two bookends on a bookshelf with two books. The two books are held together by two bookends. The two A's. The two books are different titles, but they're the exact same subject. They're both B. So the two bookends are very easy to see. Lest I be exalted above measure. Lest I be exalted above measure. Those are the bookends. Holding the two books there. The two books have two different titles. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. You see how it's the same book? What is the thorn in the flesh? It is the messenger of Satan to strike me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now Paul doesn't tell us what the thorn is. There could be a good case made for a chronic illness or sickness that I've read of and you can make in the scripture, to some degree. It's not necessary, we just know it was a thorn, and the language here is very clearly, the thorn is painful. It can mean a thorn like on a thorn bush, a plant, or it can mean a sharp wooden piece, or a stake, the kind of stake you drive into the ground to hold up your tent. Whatever it was, it was sharp, it was painful, and it buffeted Paul, which means to strike, like being Struck with repeated blows. And we know it was painful because he begged the Lord three times that it would depart from him. Two reasons, I will suppose, why Paul was silent intentionally. Number one, so you could apply it to your thorn. See, if he had told us, you might have said, well, that's not my experience. Or well, I don't have that yet. You may never have. But now, every discomfort, every pain, every difficult on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being kind of difficult but not too bad, 10 being extreme, whatever you're experiencing right now in your life, relational difficulty, emotional difficulty, physical difficulty, that's your thorn. And God means for us to apply that right now, whatever it is. Paul intentionally was silent, I think, so that we now can apply the thorn to our own life. Now imagine for a moment someone knocked at your door and it's a messenger. The word here is angelos. The messenger is a demon. Maybe he doesn't look like a demon. Maybe he looks like an orc in Lord of the Rings. But he's a messenger. He knocks on the door. Yeah, open the door. And before you know it, he thrust a thorn into your gut before you can even respond. Now, he thrust it just deep enough to cause chronic pain, but not deep enough to take your life. And then he gives you that electronic device that says, sign here that I know you received. And he's on his way. And you can't get the thorn out. And Jesus says, the thorn stays. See, I think Paul uses this structure... And the second reason he's silent, because he wants to draw attention to the theological origin of this thorn. It was a gift. The word given means to bestow a gift to one's advantage. Who gave Paul the gift? Well, it was the messenger of Satan to buffet to strike him. Was he the giver of the gift? In some degree, he was. But we know whenever Satan gives a gift, it's not to your advantage. And the aim is your destruction. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a killer. He's a destroyer. He's like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. He uses pride as an instrument to devour people and to devour their faith. When he wanted to sift Peter as wheat, he wasn't wanting to do Peter good. He wasn't wanting it to be to Peter's advantage. He wanted to destroy Peter's faith and sever him from Jesus Christ, because that's what sifting wheat does it severs the grain from the chaff and severs the two. No, Satan sent the messenger, the Angelos, in order to destroy Paul. Could you imagine what a victory? To destroy the man who's instrumental in giving us most of the New Testament. What a victory. No, the giver is not Satan. This again is the divine passive. Because the author of the gift is God himself. But how can you be sure? Because of the aim of the gift is to humble Paul. Lest I be exalted through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me the gift of a thorn. The devil doesn't do that, beloved. God gifted Paul with a thorn designed to produce weakness and humility. Why? That the power of Christ may more fully and completely rest in Paul's life. And he's doing the same thing with your thorns. Sometimes we wrestle with language on how to express the sovereignty of God in such a way that makes sure that the accountability for what Satan does is all his own. Just in the case of Job. We find that Job was attacked by Satan. Satan had the power of death. He had the power to influence the Sabians and the Chaldeans to kill the servants and to rob Job of his goods and possessions. He had the power to bring wind down and destroy his children. He had the power to strike Job with boils from his head to his feet. Yet, in all that power, he had no power without the divine sovereign permission of God, which said, You go, but here's your limitations. Beloved, the messenger of Satan is God's messenger with two radically different designs. Because Satan, he meant it for evil, but God meant it unto good. Genesis fifty twenty, When all of Joseph's brothers hated him, sold him, wanted to kill him, and he went off to Egypt in slavery. After it was all finished, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it unto good. They use the same Hebrew word. In English, the first word is actually thought. You thought you planned evil against me. God thought He planned your evil for my good and your own good. What is the good? To bring it to pass to save much people alive as it is this day. That did not... Wipe out the accountability of their evil. Joseph said, you did evil, and it was their evil. But God was ruling over it all. So what that means, in your distresses, in your thorns, in your trials, in your difficulties, whatever the messenger, whatever the secondary cause, even if there's a demon involved, it's a gift by the sovereign providence and will of God, not to do you harm, but to do you good. Because the the death of Christ purchased for you all the power of God on your behalf to bring you to the greatest good, which is what? Not your prosperity, not your good health, but the power of Jesus Christ more fully, more completely being perfected in you. That will transform the way you look at the painful Difficult, chronic sometimes thorns that touch your life. That have real secondary causes. They're real. The messenger of Satan was a real secondary cause. But Paul wants us to understand. It was from God aiming at His good. And what was the result of Paul's disposition in light of that truth? Most gladly, therefore. And it can have the same impact on you and me this morning. When we see that His power is perfected through weakness and God then is not only going to respond by grace to your weak moments. God's not just a reactionary God. If if that's the only way you see grace, there's something wrong in your theology. No, He creates the weakness. He's not waiting for you to respond. He's going to create the very weakness for which you respond in that weakness, to the sufficiency of His grace. Beloved, our God is an amazing God. He's an incomprehensible sovereign. And that means we need to trust Him in the darkness, in the thorns, in every hardship, in every trying hour. We trust the good God and know that His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud They have a bitter taste, but sweet shall be the the flower. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. What is His bright designs in being made perfect? You being made perfect? It is the power of Christ resting more fully. Your Savior resting. And how does it come? Weakness. So we need more weakness. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? We need more bankruptcy. And in that moment, we get more of the power of our Savior resting upon us. But then look what Paul says in verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me, and he said unto me. Now what is going to sustain Paul in this thorn, which he understands God's purpose. He has a purpose in this thorn. He's going to rest in what Jesus said. The word said is a a verb that's in the perfect tense. You remember this tense. It means something completed in the past that will never be repeated with ongoing results. What did Jesus say in the past that He'll never say again? He said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What is the ongoing result of those one-time spoken words? Paul hangs on. The words of Jesus Christ. And you must too. The Bible is, in a sense, one big perfect tense, isn't it? God has spoken. His revelation is complete. He will never again repeat one single word that He's spoken to you. What's the ongoing result of God's finished, completed, perfect tense word to us? And I'm using that as an illustration, right? Every word in the Bible is not perfect tense. You keep going back to his word again and again, and that word becomes the power that's mediated to you through Christ to sustain you in your hardships. It was the words of Jesus that transformed Paul, and it was the words of Jesus that became the means of Christ resting. And so it is with us today. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong, experience the the grace of Christ so that you're strengthened. How? Verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men, which shall be able to teach others also. What did he hear of Paul? He heard the words that Jesus gave him. Paul, through his words and his pen, was the unfolding of New Testament revelation. Sound words were being deposited through what he preached and what he wrote. Timothy, you've heard these sound words. Be strong in grace by going to these words, revelation, and then commit it to other teachers, which they can perpetuate the truth that sustains the church that empowers the church, by which the church worships Christ and by which the church experiences Christ descending and abiding and living in us through our experience. It is the Word of God that is instrumental in bringing the experience of Christ abiding. Or how would you experience it? So, His strength is being perfected through weakness. God is creating this weakness. He's not waiting on you. He creates this weakness through trials. And it drives us to the power of His Word. Does your weakness drive you to God's Word? Does it drive you to worship God? Does your bankruptcy drive you to seek a rich man named Jesus? That's the aim. That's how it comes. And we find this power through the word. Furthermore, this word of Christ and our weakness causes us to endure the trials. While Paul is praying for the thorn to depart from him, Jesus is saying, Paul, the thorn is the means for you not to depart from me. How long did Paul have this thorn? Well, in verse 7 he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. When did he receive the revelation? 14 years ago. When did he receive the thorn? About 14 years ago. Is there any reason we should suppose anything different? The aim of the thorn was to keep him from being exalted and humble him. So after he received the revelation, what happened? At some point, the thorn came. Now, if the design of the thorn is to keep him humble, then when does it come? probably about 14 years ago. The point here is that he had it for years. And he's enduring. He's persevering. He's continuing as an apostle through the thorns, through the suffering, through the chronic whatever it was. By knowing the origin is God, although secondary causes exist. By knowing the word of Christ, which then the word sustains him for 14 years or thereabouts. It will do the same for you, beloved. The word of Christ is what's going to drive us to the very source of our strength and then sustain us as we hold on to Jesus. Is your thorn having that impact in your life? Or is it causing you to draw away from the word? Is it causing you to draw away from worship? Is it causing you to be aloof from the Savior who's using the very experience you're going through to drive you to Him? That's what James says. And remember in James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers, all kinds of temptations or trials. Knowing this, the trying of your faith is producing endurance or patience. How does the testing of faith produce endurance. The same way the testing of gold doesn't destroy the gold. It produces resilience. Because the very trial, again, is the means that moves us toward the Savior, who is the means of our endurance. By faith, we are holding on to the Savior in the testing that produces weakness because we need someone's strength to hang on. And so James says, count it joy because you know the thorn is a test of God not to destroy you but to produce endurance for a second reason. But let patience have her what? Perfect work. That's the same Greek word. That you may be perfect Whole, entire, lacking nothing. And how does that happen? That you may experience more of the completing power of Jesus Christ through the trial. Not as you become strong in yourself, but as you become weak. You're driven to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that produces endurance, and that produces a more wholeness. Or completeness so that you understand in Jesus, I really do lack nothing. In Jesus, I have all that I need. In Jesus, I have the strength, the power to be what Jesus calls us to be. So Paul is telling us the way that strength is perfected through weakness is through remembering the ultimate origin of your thorn is God. Ultimate meaning there's a penultima. There's a secondary reason but God is over it all. That helped Paul. The word of Christ to him then become the means of power resting and that sustained Paul. So he could count it joy. Certainly the thorn was not a joy. or He never asked for it to depart. It was a pain for Paul. It was difficult. It was hard. It was sharp. But the words that Jesus said transformed Paul in such a way that he experienced the power of Christ's words to sustain him. Then the power was put on display. Now we see this in Paul's response to Jesus' words. What did he say? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Then he restates it in verse 10 like this. Therefore, I will take pleasure, which means gladness, glory, pleasure. Those are all together. I will take pleasure in infirmities, weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For, this is why, when I'm weak... That becomes the platform, the theater for being strong. Paul expounds on that to include more than whatever his thorn was, to include a generalization of distresses, calamities, persecution, reproaches, insults. So he expands now, so we know he, he captures us now, right? Distresses, calamities, difficulties of any kind. Why is gladness and glory a prerequisite for the power of Christ abiding? He used the word that. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why is it necessary to be glad, to boast, and to take pleasure in my weakness in order that Christ's power descends? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First one is this. God is resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. So Here's the question. What does a proud person boast in? His strength. That's what makes him so glad. A a proud person, even in their delusion, is glad about showing off their strength. I mean, that's what makes them tick. That's what drives them. So if that's what makes us glad, there's no power. Because God is resisting us when we are glad about showing off our strength. On the other hand, when we're weak and humble, power comes. Now think about it this way. Think about a a young boy in, let's say, elementary school. He's weak, most of us were at that time. He's small, he's thin, he has no strength. And people just beat up on him, insult him, belittle him, strike him, taunt him. So these guys that are doing all the harm, they're glad in their strength. What's going to transform this young boy if he has a friend who is so strong, so powerful? That would make him glad, wouldn't it? In fact, he'd be so glad he would boast in this friend and he would find pleasure in the power of this friend. And so it is spiritually with Jesus Christ. Proud people do not boast in Jesus And when we're that person, there is no power. Humble, weak people are glad, they boast, and they take great pleasure in the power of Jesus Christ coming to rest on them. Now here's the question. How is this power exhibited? How is it made known? We see the experience of it. The thorn, the word of Christ, and endurance. But how then is this power of grace put on display to the praise and the glory of God? Well, let's take a test. Here's a multiple choice test three questions, two possible answers. You circle the answer you think is right for you. Which gives you more gladness, more pleasure, and more glory? A. When you're insulted, you show your superior wit to put that person down? That's pride, isn't it? I just got you back. Or when you take it patiently. Let's just apply that to your relationships. When you turn a word back to your husband and your wife and you really put it to them, does that make you glad? Do I feel good? If we're honest, we have to say, yeah, there there are times when sinfully it, it felt good. Or do you find more gladness in being patient and bringing the love of correction or the love and gentleness of Christ to that relationship that's power and that's not your power because you can't do that and you and I demonstrate it all the time don't we that's power so there's the A and B second question does it make you glad and give you pleasure when you use your wisdom to get out of a situation, overcome thorns in your life and show what strength you have? Or when you pray and ask God for wisdom to get you through it, and you commit your way unto the Lord and you wait for Him to bring it to pass, to bring your righteousness to pass as the noonday light, Psalm 37. B is where the power of Christ is resting. Through your weakness, see if you're not glad. Christ is not dwelling. Why is that? Because you're you're glad in your power to overcome. You're glad in your insults. You're glad in retaliating. It's necessary to be glad in glory in the power of Christ, so that it will rest. Otherwise, we're glorying and we're glad and we're taking pleasure in something else, aren't we? You're going to do something in your thorns, beloved. You're going to go somewhere. You're going to try to get help. You're going to try to find some strength. You cannot be neutral when it strikes your life. Where is your gladness? And thirdly, in necessities in, in persecutions, or necessities, distresses, I would have been the second one, overcoming those with your own wisdom, persecutions. Do you find gladness in retaliating, in returning evil for evil, in getting people back and doing to them exactly what they did to you, or do you find greater pleasure in boasting? When, contrarywise, Peter would say, you bless those people, or you love your enemy, you do good to those that persecute you, you pray for those that despitefully use you and abuse you. When is the power of Christ resting? How is Christ being put on display in your relationships? How is Christ being exhibited when He's resting on you? Through the weakness that's resting in His superior power, that's resting in His Word, that's taking it patiently, that's not retaliating, that's not doing evil in return, that is resting on the love of Christ in you and for you. Now you know why, and I know why it says being made perfect, because that's a process, right? None of us here have arrived. All of us here have had the A circled in occasions in our life. And we've all had occasions, by the grace of God, we circle the B where He's blessed us to be that. The key is how we see the thorns in our lives first relationally. Let's not not even talk about the enemy yet. Just in your marriage and in your family. And in your relationships, just start there. How is the power of Christ resting when we return evil to one another? Because sometimes we say wrong things. We insult each other. Isn't we show our own wisdom? We have necessities and distresses. Or is when we pray and we seek to exhort one another and love one another? And so the power of Christ is resting and then it's being shared and exhibited to one another to the end that God gets the glory. Because Paul has stated the first letter's purpose, and this one as well, that him that glory, glory in the Lord. God is so working through the thorns in your life to secure His own glory. Everything He does in the plan of salvation is securing His own glory. And He's only going to secure it through your weakness, So oddly enough, the application is get weak. Get as weak and as bankrupt and as needy as you possibly can because in that moment, that's the platform. That's the theater. That's the place where power comes. Paul finishes and says, Therefore I take pleasure in weaknesses and reproaches and necessities and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, then I am strong. May the Lord keep perfecting us by His grace, His person, His power resting upon us as we learn more how to be weak and humble under the mighty hand of God as He sends thorns, testing, trials, difficulties, and hardships that we may experience the grace of Christ through the Word of God in producing endurance for His glory and ultimately in exhibiting to one another even through forgiveness and repentance, the power that shows this is all of God and not of man. Or to, to end with Paul's quote again in First Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the thorns That you bring about through your providence in our lives. We are told in everything to give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. We are told for all things to give thanks. And so we take that to mean we thank you for the trials, the testing, and the thorns. Help us, Lord, to show our gratitude by receiving them from a Father's good hand, by receiving them as your grace even if we don't understand all the reasons that we may have to dive into the depth of hardship and difficulty and sorrow and pain, yet we understand the ultimate purpose, the bright design, is for the power of Christ to so rest more fully on us that we experience the gladness, the glory, and the pleasure of the strong man Christ through our weakness and so that the praise of the glory of your favor, your sovereign free grace might be more fully seen through us. And we just pray, Lord, make it so. We need you. Make it a reality more and more as we love you and we want you to be glorified through us and through this church. We ask you all this in Jesus' name. Amen.